We're going to start today's session with a conversation with Sean Doe, co-founder at Modded Eros. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good. So, Sean, let's start by introducing our audience to you. Tell us about you, your business, and, and uh, what are you doing? Sure. So, uh, Modded Euros is kind of uh, a uh, short version for modified, Euros being European cars. So, what we do is we're an aftermarket performance parts uh, online retailer. We sell performance and styling parts for European vehicles such as Audi, BMW, and Volkswagen. Um, 100% online retail. We have a warehouse and offices here in Pennsylvania in the United States, and we ship to customers all over the United States. And when did you start this company? How did you get it started? And why did you choose this particular domain? Yeah, so um, myself and I have two other co-founders um, in the company. We actually worked about uh, six years ago now, I think it's been. Uh, we worked for another uh, online automotive retailer, uh, Turn 5 which is a holding company of uh, AmericanMuscle.com, ExtremeTerrain.com, as well as American Trucks. They're an Inc. Top 500 online retailer, um, pretty much selling aftermarket performance parts and selling parts, but for domestic vehicles. So Ford Mustang, uh, the Jeep market, as well as some of the American truck models, such as Chevy and Ford, uh, the Ford F-150s. So myself and my two co-founders, uh, Jim and Nate, we handled all their customer acquisition, or at least their online customer acquisition, so that's uh, paid search. Mm -hmm. Uh, SEO as well as paid social. So at the time, you know, yeah. Facebook, Instagram was kind of not really taken off just yet, but all the Facebook PPC, uh, retargeting, everything around that is what we handled. And uh, we decided to quit our job a number of years ago and kind of launch into a, a similar vertical that we didn't have a non-compete with. Um, kind of the mentality behind that was we did take some time, um, probably about a year, year and a half to figure out what we wanted to do. So in that time, we consulted. We did, you know, online marketing, so paid search, social, uh, paid advertising, as well as SEO for a handful of online retailers and some service-based businesses as we were kind of figuring out what vertical we wanted to enter or what domain, rather. And for us, you know, we, we looked at everything, um, anything from baby products through sporting goods through, um, and then we eventually came back to automotive. And part of the reason why we liked automotive is we're familiar with it. So if we ever did need to secure any kind of uh, third-party funding outside of traditional financing, um, it's much easier to secure financing uh, in that type of avenue, already having prior experience and especially working for a company that is very well known in the industry. Um, and two, it's, it's really a good market for um, the life cycle. You know, a lot of markets, you acquire a customer and they kind of go away. So for example, if you look at the baby product market, you know, a baby's a baby for only a few months, and then they become a, a toddler and, you know, then a, a young kid. So you either need to make a lot of money very quickly, and, you know, that consumer being the parent would have to have more children in order for you to drive up your lifetime value for that customer, or you would um, just need to constantly be acquiring new customers at a decent CPA. Um, so for us, the great thing about automotive is catering to vehicles that are in various price points is, you know, you'll have someone who – say, 17 years old here in the United States, gets a driver's license, and they get a car for a few thousand dollars because that's all they can afford, and they'll buy products for that car, and eventually they sell that car, and then they'll buy another car, and they do it all over again. So the life cycle, um, if you acquire a customer and keep them happy, can actually go over a long period of time with them as they pretty much rinse and repeat the whole purchase cycle over and over again. Mm, very good. Very good analysis. So... Um, 
talk a little bit about how you got your company off the ground and got to your first million. What were the sure. key drivers, key moves, and how did right. you get there? So, for, for anyone, you know, outside of, you know, we were, we're self-funded. So, you know, from day one, it's not like we started with an idea, then went over to someone and says, hey, give us a whole stack of cash and let's get this going. Um, one of the key strategies for us was when we quit our job is being able to pay yourself, right? Obviously, unless you're funded, you need to stay alive until that business turns profitable. And for us, the easiest way to do that was to start another business. So we actually started a consulting business because there's no overhead, right? All you need is yeah. your time and to be able to acquire customers, uh, at least clients in this case, and pay yourselves enough money and then also give you enough cash to play with to start your actual business. So for us, it was kind of a twofold uh, process. We said, let's start mm -hmm. a consulting company, generate enough revenue that it was just paying ourselves a, you know, a decent amount of uh, money, but not enough where it was taking away too much time for us to actually work towards our actual um, goal, which was to start an e-commerce business um, and then move away from the consulting business. So that was kind of one of the key strategies for us in order to kind of survive until you got to that MVP. Um, so we picked up a handful of consulting clients and then we kind of started the store. We did it very cheaply. Um, we did it on out-of-the-box software. Um, you know, there's Shopify, BigCommerce, all these stores that are out nowadays. Um, you know, so you can do it pretty cheaply. Um, and then we just kept uh, going back to what our strengths were, which was marketing from TPC and organic. Uh, side of search. So what we did was, you know, we kind of were able to test the words with PPC, and then once we started generating enough sales, we knew that we had a viable product, and um, that's when we started actually putting some money towards it out of our own pocket to actually build uh, our own platform, um, which is the basis of what it is today. Um, and then as the company grew, and we felt comfortable enough to actually start siphoning money out of the business to actually start, you know, payroll and stuff like that back in the day, we just slowly started hiring our clients. So it's like as one business was rising, we started pulling back on the other business. So it's a good way of kind of uh, protecting the downside and uh, removing as much risk for us. How long did it take you to uh, get to a million? Uh, we easily had a million in year one. In year one, okay. Yeah. And yeah. Um, year one. That's the other thing is I think- financing. In, uh, in, a, in the kind of business that you've chosen to be in, there is there's an inventory cost. How did you manage sure. that? Yeah, so pretty much like any e-commerce business, especially now, it's kind of on the rise, or at least it's more popular in the general public size. You know, dropshipping is the way to go. Um, dropshipping, for those who don't know what dropshipping is, um, it's basically when an order is placed with us, we then, in return, place the order with the manufacturer or sometimes a wholesale distributor, and they ship the order right to the customer. So you're actually never floating any money outside of the time it takes for you to get the funds into your bank account from a, whether it be credit card processing or whatever payment gateway you use, PayPal. Um, but that's what we leverage, 100% drop sh shipping right, off the gate, uh, right out of the bat. Um, that was the easiest way to kind of not need capital for inventory. Um, on a retail model, you know, obviously, if you're a new business trying to resell someone's else, someone else's products, your margins are going to be very, very thin. You know, you could have, say, 15% margins um, before you're shipping out the door on stuff that you um, are reselling, like a third party. So one of the keys for us was just making sure that our customer acquisition costs were okay and we weren't necessarily bleeding money. Um, on some brands, we knew we were going to lose money, so you kind of have to... Um, 
eat that and kind of blend it in with the rest of the margins that you're going to get because ultimately you're striving to get to the typical resell uh, margins, which, you know, are really 30, you can see it's by 50 points, but generally you're in the 30 to 40 points before she can talk out the door. Um, so we were very aggressive with customer acquisition um, and just keeping our eyes on the uh, bottom line cost out the door. So we didn't really have to risk too much money. It was just staying on top of the financials to make sure that we weren't going to um, either we were going to break even early on so we could customer acquisition and kind of uh, get hot with the groceries that we needed um, and not believe too much money. So my to get the business going and so forth, did you change your uh, strategy with the inventory? Did you oh, yeah. start taking inventory or did you keep going with the same dropship model? Yeah, so as with any online retailer, even your big box retailers still do dropship. So depending on the marketplace, um, you have what's considered high velocity and low velocity. So anything, obviously, for us that once we started doing volume, we started seeing high velocity, we started to inventory that. So, you know, the benefit of inventorying it is a couple things. One is speak to the customer, because most, a lot of your wholesale distributors, you and manufacturers take a bit of time for them to ship a product. And, you know, in the age of Amazon, everyone who ordered something today wants it yesterday. So that's the battle that you have. And being a new business in, let's say, even today's marketplace, it's extremely brutal for people to come into the marketplace and not be able to get products shipped to the customer as fast as possible. So what we did was we just analyzed what our high-velocity items were, and we started bringing those in-house. At whatever quantities we could early on, and eventually, like with any any retail or even online retail business, you start negotiating terms, right? So you get your net 15 to start, or net 30, and then you work towards net 45, where you're only paying for the goods, you know, 30 days uh, either after they're sold, or some companies do, you know, that month net 30, so you know, June's orders you do uh, by the end of August or July rather, <laughs> and vice versa. Um, so it was really just kind of ramping Sean? up from there and looking at, yeah. Sean? Can you adjust your microphone? The audio is uh, a little bit distorted. So something is happening maybe in the position of your microphone. Is that better? Uh, well, go ahead and speak and we'll see. Um, sure. What I was saying is basically looking at the uh, high velocity item and you would warehouse those items um, whereas you would still drop shift your low velocity items. And, and that's where you drop in some inventory financing. Correct. And a lot of times you can leverage your vendors for that actual financing by negotiating that term. Um, how much of this have you done with negotiating with vendors and terms versus actually working with lenders who finance inventory? Uh, are you talking about today? Probably today. At least, at least 60% of our inventory are vendors financed easily. Vendor finance, okay. Yeah. And when, it, um, like I said, so if you look at the trajectory of your um, growth, what are the inflection points where you became eligible to be able to negotiate with vendors for terms? Or an inflection point where you became eligible to be able to get to negotiate good outside financing to take, uh, you know, to finance your inventory? Sure. I think um, you, you start to have to doing, you know, velocity. I mean, no one ultimately cares about you until you start doing some numbers, right? You have to start moving units before anyone actually pays attention to you. 
you can't start a business and expect someone to give you everything. Um, it's a very give and take, especially in the reseller type of community, because there's only so much that they're willing to give you in terms of margin, and there's only so much you can do in order to sell the product, right? You have marketing costs, you have shipping costs, and things of that nature. So you have to approach it from not only a reseller side, but you have to look at it, what if you're on the other side of the picture and you're a manufacturer, what are things of interest to you? And that's what you need to leverage. And you know, once you start doing velocity, people start listening because obviously what you're doing is working. So mm -hmm. you have to approach it from, you start with the brands that you're moving volume with, you negotiate those types of deals, and then oftentimes you can take those deals and then go back to other brands in your catalog and say, well, it's working for us over here, how about we try it for you, even though we're not the largest uh, retailer for you. And also time to listen, especially if you're doing you know, any type of business with you, or with them rather. Um, and then ultimately you'll get to the point where brands approach you to get into your catalog, right? You know, you're, you're gaining market share, you have impressions. Um, whether you move product or not, they just want to get into your catalog just because of the eyeballs that you are getting. And at that point, you're in a position where you can say, these are my requirements. You know, whereas before, when you're early on starting a business, you'll sell, you'll sell anything, right? Ultimately, you're just trying to stay alive. You're trying to get revenue. But when you get to a position where you have control of either the marketplace or you have a, a decent control of the market share, in terms of impressions at least, you can start setting your terms, meaning these are the margins I require, I require yeah. net terms, you know, I require, you know, for us, it's shipping speed. We, we need people to ship our orders. If they are going to be drop shipped, they have to be shipped within a very fast period of time. And you hold people accountable. Um, but in return, you're going to, you know, say, well, if you do all these things and we bring you on, these are all the things that we're going to do for you. So you have to approach it from both sides of the picture and always put yourself in the perspective of, perspective of if I was a manufacturer, how would this sound to me? Yep. And um, how does your merchandising strategy flow from all this? I'm sure you've, you've said a lot of things which point to, you know, surge volumes driving merchandising strategy, sure. velocity of mm -hmm. what selling drives merchandising strategy. What, what have been the thinking behind your merchandising strategy? Sure. So, I mean, this can kind of apply to everyone outside of even automotive since we're automotive, but we, you know, one of the strategies obviously is filling product gaps. So for us, for example, let's say, and I'm going to simplify this just for the sake of the audience, say we didn't sell wheels, right? And we were just selling performance products. But we say, well, our customers also buy wheels. Why aren't we selling wheels? So then you start looking for manufacturers that sell wheels, and you obviously look for them at an attractive margin. Um, you know, the same goes on a very granular level, which is what we actually do. We look very specific product categories. That's a very simplified example. But for example, you know, our vehicles are around year, make, and model. So we start identifying and saying, what's a large number of customers that are either inputting vehicles into our database looking for products, and then yeah. what are we not actually offering? You know, it could be a, a specific year or year range that we have really a very poor selection on. Um, so then you start going after that. Um, another strategy, obviously, is margin, right? You know, you have to make money. You're not in the business to lose money or break even. So margin comes into play. You know, a lot of times you'll have more than one brand for the same type of product. So you need to make sure that by bringing on a brand, you're not cannibalizing the sales of another brand. So, for example, let's say we sell a product and we're making 40 points on. Well, this new brand comes on that we want to sign on, and we're going to, let's say, get half of that, 20 points. Well, why would I want to sell that? You know, am I going to do volume? Because if I can justify it on a volume basis, I can justify it from a bottom line standpoint. But if it's not necessarily going to do volume and offset my net, my net, 
then why would I do it? Because I'm just going to cannibalize sales from one brand to another and actually lose money. Um, so mm -hmm. it really depends on your strategy. Um, you know, it could be speed. You know, I might want to get rid of a brand that's too slow or they can't fulfill our inventory, um, something like that, to speed up. And that's a customer um, experience kind of marketing, uh, merchandising strategy. It's not always just about, you know, one thing or the other, whether it be price or filling a product gap. It's kind of an overall picture you have to take for merchandising. Very interesting. You have bootstrapped the business. Um, mm -hmm. Even though you said that early on in your choice of verticals, you factored in the idea of maybe at some point raising financing, but you didn't raise financing. Sure. What has been sure. the thinking vis-a-vis -vis financing strategy within the company? Um, I'm a big believer in um, what I like to refer to as being hungry. Um, I think oftentimes companies go down the path of raising money for a few reasons. One is uh, what I refer to as like throwing a Hail Mary. They get to the point where they're like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? I need cash. And they you know, go after that and they bring on you know, a poor partner. They go after it from just pure money aspect and they bring on partners that ultimately cause uh, too many problems with the business. You know, We see this with a lot of actually brands in our industry um, that just make poor decisions. They go to private equity and actually the customer base um, kind of backfires on them. Um, and we actually see this with one of the larger uh, competitors that we do have um, that's private equity owned and uh, is actually experiencing some troubles right now. Um, so it, I think it's a control aspect. I think it's also a, a good strategy um, because, you know, a company that's lean is also actually more dangerous, right? Um, because, you know, if you just throw money at something, eventually you're going to have to make that money back. So a private equity company, you know, can dump as much money as they want, but if they can't make it back, they're in a bad position. Whereas if you're running lean and you can scale, on a lean model, that's very dangerous to someone who's dumping too much cash into a business. Totally agree. It's very much you know, in it's a, it's a, line with our it's like, here. Yeah, it's like a, um, a lot of times people make decisions on short-term revenue, whereas I like to make decisions based on long-term revenue, and I think that's a better long-term revenue decision. Now, obviously, if you need financing for something um, on a large scale, that's a different, you know, different decision, but I'm speaking from, you know, this marketplace, and you'll see actually a lot of, of these larger uh, automotive e-commerce stores have never received any funding. You know, our yeah. prior employer never received outside cash, just traditional financing. Right. Now, um, in the strategy of running lean, what role has a virtual company structure played for you? Could you describe actually the structure of your team and how you've recruited, where you've recruited, and, and how you've kept things lean? Yeah, sure. Um, so, from a recruiting standpoint, ultimately, I don't necessarily care where anybody is in the world. Um, obviously, for certain tasks, like you know, working in the warehouse, they have to actually be physically here. Um, but as far as, you know, you have graphic design, you have web design, and things of that nature, um, you know, we utilize people from all over the world. And, you know, not necessarily, I'm not talking about going on freelancer websites and, you know, just hiring people like that. Um, well, you know, Um, I'm not referring to doing um, things in the nature like freelancer or e-lance or stuff like that, you know, to do web development. Um, but, you know, we have web, uh, our web developers are not in the United States, um, you know, they're, they're in Europe. Um, and, you know, a language barrier to me doesn't matter, um, you know, location doesn't matter. Um, we just ultimately need to recruit the best talent. Um, 
and for us, that's always been the thing. Because, I mean, I'm a big advocate of uh, self-managing, and if someone can't self-manage themselves, then it's just micromanaging. And I think micromanaging is useless because you waste my time and the person that I'm hiring time. You know, you should ultimately hire people who are very intelligent and more intelligent than you in the areas that you're hiring for. Um, I think from a management standpoint, you have to have a general idea of what um, needs to be done. So you should have some general idea of how to do each job. Um, that makes you more effective at hiring for that position, but ultimately you need to hire people who are smarter than you and can just take something and run with it. What's and oftentimes the, by restricting your uh, your workforce to a, you know, whatever, a 10-mile radius around where your physical office is, I think that runs into a problem. What is the size of your team today? Uh, we're over a dozen employees, but we keep it lean. And... Um, so the remote, uh, how, what percentage is remote and what percentage is, how many are remote, how many are uh, virtual, and um, how many are uh, on location? About, what, one, two, three, 25% remote? Yeah. 25%, okay. Yeah. And um, so this is my final question, and, and let's spend sure. a little bit of time brainstorming about this topic because this is mm -hmm. what applies to all the uh, entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting small uh, e-commerce companies today. How does a small e-commerce merchant compete with Amazon in this day and age? What is your advice for new entrepreneurs in the category? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I'm going to speak from the automotive, but there's also, this applies to pretty much many of the verticals. I think a lot of, if you're in, let's say, a resale, right, because so there's a couple different models. You can either resell someone's stuff or you can actually private label manufacture, which would be, um, you know, taking a product, manufacturing it, either manufacturing under your own name or um, under a, another label. Um, you know, most manufacturers are actually not interested in being sold on Amazon. Um, if you actually look at a lot of their policies that are in place nowadays and coming out, most of them have what's considered a do not sell list, which Amazon and eBay are generally actually on that list. Um, the reason being is most manufacturers are realizing that um, it's not a long good long-term strategy to have something get diluted on Amazon. Um, so Amazon really isn't a concern to to me. Um, you know, we don't even look at it really, <laughs> to be honest with you. And and most most uh, retailers don't um, as far as um, these niche businesses. You know, if you're going to try to start. Um, in some some other verticals, that might be a challenge. You know, if you're going to sell televisions or try to sell, you know, something like that, like, good luck. Um, but, you know, in a lot of these niche businesses, Amazon won't be able to compete on the things that actually matter, which is customer service, um, because a lot of these type of markets require extreme amounts of knowledge. And, you know, Amazon has successfully actually built a massive business on very little customer service around the area of one-on-one -on -one interactions, whether it be through phone calls, live chat, um, you know, actual, you know, marketing initiatives, you know, no social. Um, it's, it's quite impressive, but that's why I think some of these niche businesses are actually able to survive in the age of Amazon is for that reason. Um, so, you know, how to kind of successfully build a business in today's age with Amazon, I think it's, uh, one, you have to pick the right market. Um, you have to analyze it from a, a few different points. You know, for us, it was it needs to have an average order value of a decent size um, because if you're reselling, you have to apply the reselling margin. 
and that'll apply also what you can afford for a customer acquisition cost. You know, it, at the end of the day, it just boils down to math. What's your customer acquisition cost? What's your targeted uh, average order value based on your margin? And that'll determine what that order's profitability is. And then you have to look at a market size and say, is it big enough? And if it's big enough, who are the players? Are we able to take a percentage of that? And, um, you know, is it viable? Um, you know, you, you can't necessarily pick a market that's extremely small and expect to be profitable and survive. It's just not going to work. Um, so you have to really approach it from a, a few different angles. So, you know, my take on this topic is, is partly what you said, yes, that you have to pick a category where Amazon is not going to play and the information-rich categories that people have a lot of questions about and that require one-on-one -on -one customer service is a very good filter to put on what category you choose to go into. Um, another mm -hmm. category to, to uh, uh, you know, another filter to put in is, you know, categories where people want immediate delivery are not good categories to compete with Amazon in, right? Because that is one of their great customer service sweet spots is, you know, immediate delivery, Prime, and I mean, they're, they're offering incredible delivery terms these days. And if that matters in your niche, that's probably not something that you're going to be able to compete with Amazon in. So people, need, your customer base needs to be willing to trade off that one-on-one -on -one customer support, rich, you know, high-touch customer support with the idea of the fact that you may take a bit longer to deliver because I don't think the third-party logistics providers have yet gotten to a point where everybody is offering, you know, the same kind of delivery uh, terms as Amazon is offering. I think they will get there. There's a lot of pressure on the third-party logistics providers to match Amazon's level of delivery um, services. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I'd actually kind of debate that because, you know, even in our market, like I said, people want to order it today and have it yesterday. So, you know, we have numerous customers will place an order and within 30 minutes they're asking for tracking information. Um, so, you know, you really can't get away unless you're building something custom. The customer base in the United States is, is very, very um, eager to get, say, to get their products and in a polite way. Whereas I think internationally, um, actually, international customers tend to be willing to wait a little bit longer, actually. So what is your experience in terms of delivery? Well, how are you doing that? Are you working with third-party logistics providers who are able to do what you need? No. So we don't use 3PLs. Um, we use our own warehouse. And then we also, like I said, uh, a percentage of our orders do get drop shipped, um, which is common across every single every single competitor in this space, you know, because uh, some of these products are low velocity. Um, it's really working with those uh, manufacturers because you have less control in getting these items out the door very quickly. So it's, it's a constant battle. It really is. Well, I mean, you, are, you may not have to use 3PLs, but the manufacturers will have to use 3PLs. So if you have to meet those... No, they actually don't. A lot of them don't use 3PLs. So how do they deliver? Through the, their own warehousing. Yeah, the They're issue with 3PL. They have enough coverage to be able to deliver within like mm -hmm. one or two days from their own with their own service. Delivery no, service? it won't deliver. Yeah, no, it won't deliver within one to two, but it'll ship out within 24 hours. And ultimately, that's what the customer wants. They want tracking information. They want to know they placed the order and they're getting tracking information very, very fast. Um, I see. You know, that's doable. Yeah. That's doable. Yeah. That's doable. Right. But the Amazon customer you base think it's doable, is but looking it's not. for shipment. 
and completed, fulfillment completed within the next, within two days or three days. And that's becoming, that's yeah. creating a lot of pressure on the, on fact, the. Yeah. In some of these markets, it'll never happen because if you look at it from just a, a pure math standpoint, I mean, if you have low velocity, there's no way you can really uh, achieve a next day delivery on low velocity. You'd have to your your holding costs and your um, your churn on those items would eat you alive on a reselling margin. Well. Yes and no, because if the third-party logistics providers standardize on those kinds of delivery terms, then you would be able to deliver by using somebody else's network and, and still be able to meet those terms. I think that, that change is still in the process. That change has not come right. fully kicked in here. Right. Yeah, right. All right. Well, Sean, very interesting. Would you like to provide any guidance on how far along are you by way of, you know, revenues or Whatever you're we can't propose revenue. There's so many people who would want to know what our revenue is, but I mean, we're definitely in the, um, you know, in the uh, seven figures per employee, easily. So. All right. Excellent. Well, congratulations, yep. and uh, and we'll keep in touch and track your progress. Mhm. Mm yeah, absolutely. Thank, Thank you for having me. Sure.